Hey, it's Burton Shalow. And this is Savannah Hart, and you're listening to the Black Box Podcast. Social media has democratized everything. Today, you can start a blog, you can start a podcast, you can go on YouTube and do your own thing. And if you are unique enough or somehow innovative enough, you can make a name for yourself. And some people have done that and gotten hired by the bigger networks. Hey guys, welcome to the Black Box Podcast with Burton Chawla and Savannah Hart, where we have key conversations with industry leaders in the sports and entertainment world. On this week's episode, we have NBA insider Chris Broussard. Chris, thanks for joining the show. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Chris and I go back a long way, and his first thought was, I'm getting gray and old. Thanks a lot, Chris. Appreciate you. <laughs> seasoned. Well, well seasoned. when I met Burton, you were uh, doing PR for the Knicks. So you were a young whippersnapper. I was, I was. And then we got close that one NBA Finals uh, when the Nets were in it. I don't know if you remember. You were like, what are you doing here? I was in the locker room. <laughs> and you were surprised that I was in the locker room next to Shaq. And I was like, I'm working. Like, what do you mean? What am I doing here? Um, but Chris, appreciate you. Um, would really love to hear about your career arc and some of the highlights in your career. This is a podcast where we try to talk to people like you, people in the industry, sports and music and entertainment, and learn about how they got there, learn about um, what the industry really is like, try to pull that curtain back a little bit. So uh, we'd love to start with the career arc, the highlights, maybe even the lowlights, all of that. Well, how I even decided to try to be a sports writer was I was a sophomore in college, Overland College in Ohio. And looked around as a sophomore at many of my friends, my teammates. I played on the basketball team. Looking at my teammates, looking at some of my friends, they all seemed to have a plan. The girl I ended up marrying, we were just friends at that time. She knew she was going to medical school. I had teammates that knew they were going to be engineers, go to law school. You know, this was Division Three, so none of us were going to the NBA. So everybody seemed to have a plan in place except me. And I, and I got scared and I started, you know, thinking, man, I've got like two years, two and a half years before I have to get out in the real world and become a responsible adult and take care of myself. And so I came up with a formula for what I wanted to do. And I took something I enjoyed, which was sports plus something that I was gifted at, which was writing. I always was a, was a good writer. Uh, And I said, let me try to become a sports writer. And so I started, I wrote a little bit, not much, but a little bit for the the school newspaper and was fortunate to get an internship at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. What people would do at that time. So I was literally sitting in the newsroom from 3 p.m. to midnight, five days a week, me and a group of other guys. And people would call up instead of being able to Google whatever your questions were, people would call up randomly. Hey, Who was the starting shooting guard for the Cavs back in 1976? You know, the miracle of Richfield or whatever year that was. And you would, if you didn't know it off the top of your head, you would have to go look in an almanac or (laughs) something and give them the answer. That was what we were doing. I want to hear about how'd you get to the times? Because we're talking about much smaller market. 
pre-internet, right? Where market doesn't matter as much anymore because of social media and the internet and, you know, now like the team matters or now the player matters, right? Uh, Giannis, for example, matters, right? Versus back in the day, Milwaukee wasn't a big market. So, and, and you obviously can cover teams now from a national perspective and not have to be in that market. We just, how'd you get to the times? Like, what was that transition? There's no internet. There's no social media. It's not like people are like, we got to get Chris Broussard, right? So how did that happen? And then the next jump in your career um, to ESPN, obviously, and then also TV. We'd love to hear like those, the, the transitional moments there. Well, I was, so I went to the Akron Beacon Journal and after a few months there, they promoted me to cover the Cavs as a beat writer. So that was the was this was this LeBron so pre LeBron still oh yeah ninety five ninety six season Terrell Brandon Bobby Phils Chris Mills that was their big three back then all right <laughs> so Mike Fratello was the coach so I'm covering the Cavs cover them for two years and I was I did you know did a did a good job and editors around the country even though there was no internet at that time, they keep track of young up and coming writers. So they were always looking for new talent and up and coming writers. And also I want to shout out, uh, you, you know, him, Burton, I'm Howard sure, Beck. Mike Wise. Oh, Mike Wise. I thought you were going to say yeah. Howard Beck. Okay. Mike was writing for the New York times. And when the Cavs would play the Knicks, they played the Knicks in the playoffs. And so I was covering that series for the Cavs. And he, you know, New York writers saw my saw my work. And so Mike actually mentioned me. I don't know if he was asked or he just did it on his own, but he mentioned me to the sports editor at the New York Times, Neil Amder. And so the New York Times, they brought me in for an interview. Uh, and so I spoke to them and uh, the interview went well. I was on a trip to New York with the Cavs or to cover a game. Spoke to them. They liked me. And you know my background a little bit, Burton. You know uh, I'm a Christian. And I was actually doing a lot of Christian ministry before, you know, within while I was working, stuff like that. So I was torn about do I want to continue as a sports writer or go into full-time ministry? And so the New York Times, after the first interview, they liked me. They said, look, we're going to bring you back in a month. I think the Cavs may have been going back there in a month. They said, we'll bring you in for a second interview. And so about two weeks before the interview, I called the New York Times and I was like, look, thanks, but no thanks. Um, I'm, I'm decided I'm going to go into the full-time ministry. And so I was going to go to seminary and leave sports writing altogether. What year is this? This would have been 1998, I believe. Or no, this, when I told him, it would have been 1997, 1997. And so I, I told the, the Times, I'm not interested. And then I told the Beacon Journal, I said, look, I'm going into full-time ministry. I'm going to go to seminary. And since I'm not covering, you know, I'm not trying to progress in this field, you can take me off the calves because I don't want to be traveling all over. I just got married. I don't want to be traveling all over the place since I'm not trying to do this for a career. So they put me on the University of Akron. So I covered, I left the Cavs beat after two years, covered the University of Akron, still back, did a few Cavs games here and there. 
And then my wife and I, just after praying and thinking about the situation, she got pregnant with twins. We decided, you know what? Uh, it's not time for me to go to seminary, to quit my job <laughs> and go to seminary right now, you know? So I was like, man, I should have probably should have went to the New York Times, you know? So I'm just covering colleges at the Beacon Journal. And almost a year to the day, the New York Times called me out of the blue, the, the editor. And he says, hey, Chris, are you still thinking about going to seminary? I said, well, yeah, but not for a few years. And he says, well, why don't you come work at the New York Times until you go? I said, I'm going to go in about two or three years. He's like, I know, I understand, but come work for us until then. I went to interview at the New York Times and I interviewed with people in every department, outside of sports, the top editors, all that. Newsday also wanted me to work there as well and made me an offer. They were offering me the Knicks, but, and they were offering more money. And I talked to the New York Times about it. They said, look, we're the New York Times. (laughs) If you're going to go to Newsday over us for a few thousand dollars, and I said, you know what, you're right. So I went to the Times and I covered the Nets for a few years, about two years. You know, that was the Nets beat was the entry beat at the New York Times. Mike Wise covered the Nets. Uh, Selena Roberts covered the Nets. It acclimates you to New York sports writing culture and all that. So I covered the Nets when they had Stephon Marbury. And then I moved up to the Knicks and covered the Knicks for three years. And then I covered the, the New York Times promoted me to just the NBA, general NBA writer for a year. And then after that is when I went to New, the ESPN, the magazine which was a great move for me because when ESPN hired me, I was not, it was not for TV. My contract was with ESPN, the magazine to write. And so they said, look, we've seen, I had been on ESPN uh, as I've been on cold pizza, which became first take. I've been on sports center, you know, just as a New York times writer. So they were like, we like you on TV. We'll have you on TV at times and we'll see how it goes from there. Over time, my career just morphed. You know, all of us, Stephen A., Tony Kornheiser, Mike Wilbon, Rachel Nichols, we all started as writers. And though they started putting writers on television for their information, and those that had good information and were comfortable in front of the camera or maybe had really good charisma are the ones that eventually became TV personalities. So as time went on, I was doing more and more and more television and less and less writing. And, um, and now at Fox, I'm all television and radio. I haven't written a word since I've been there. <laughs> Good for you. So, so Chris, obviously, obviously, you know, you, you continued on the analyst path and the writing path as opposed to going back to your fellowship, as you mentioned that you were, you initially wanted to. You have included a lot of your religious views throughout your, throughout your career, right? And you've been, you haven't had any remorse or, or anything about it, right? Which, which I find admirable, right? Because a lot of people try to separate the two, um, but you have no problem putting it out there. 
Now, one major, one major, um, you know, event, or I guess we can call controversial moment was when you came out against Jason Collins in 2005, right? Um, 2013. Jason, oh, sorry, 2013. Right. Let me set the stage for, for the people listening, right? So Jason Collins was one of the first, one of the first athletes across the four major athletes of America to come out as being openly gay. Um, sure, there may have been some other athletes who have been gay, but he was the first one to actually announce it to the world. And what what did you what was your response to it? So I don't paraphrase. Well, my response initially, I was on SportsCenter a lot that morning and I was just reporting what I was being told. I was texting with people all over the league. I was the first one to let Kobe know, Kobe Bryant. I texted him. He texted me a response. I said, can I use that on TV? He said, I just, I think he said, I just tweeted it or something, you know, so I couldn't, but, so I was just being an objective reporter and sharing coaches and players, executives feel this way or saying this and blah, blah, blah. Then I went on that afternoon outside the lines, which is a show where your personal opinions often come into play. And they had me and LZ Granderson on, who LZ LZ was the assistant NBA editor when I was at ESPN, the magazine. So we worked closely together. We were good friends. We played on several rec teams together in basketball, had dinners together. You know, we, we were cool. And he's openly gay. And we had had discussions about my beliefs and his beliefs and his lifestyle. And I don't agree with his lifestyle. He doesn't agree with my beliefs. And, but we were cool. We were friends. We could talk openly about it. And so I had written a few years earlier, actually about, it was like 2007, I think, when Majana Mechie came out as gay after he retired. So I talked about, we have to be able to disagree without being disagreeable if we're going to be a pluralistic society, right? So I talked about my relationship with LZ. We were friends despite our differences. And ESPN loved it. And so that was really what spurred them to have me and LZ on outside the lines. And I didn't know. Like, I, I sat down in the seat, and 30 seconds before I'm hitting the air, and I check in, and LZ checks in. I'm like, oh, you, LZ, you on the show too? He's like, yeah, yeah. So we just, that's how it was. It was no plan. People think ESPN set you up, you know, or UNLZ talked before. No, it, that's how it always is, though. You don't always, most times, I didn't know who else was going to be on the show. So, you know, they, we began discussing the situation, and LZ talked about our relationship. And so I, I began expounding on it. And saying, as a Christian, I believe sex is for marriage between a man and a woman and so on and so forth. And then the, the host asked me point blank, you know, he said, Jason Collins says he's a Christian in the article. What do you think about that, Chris? And I said, well, according to what the Bible says, that's a sin. And if you're living in unrepentant sin, I wouldn't call you a Christian. That's essentially what I said. Um, and so... ESPN loved it initially. I got calls. I got texts. Hey, we're trying to figure out how we want to use you going forward as just a commentator to give your opinion or as a reporter. But then about an hour after the show finished, 
that's when everything hit the fan and the, the media was killing me. People I knew were killing me and uh, writing things and it was all over. So uh, there was no there was no talk ever or hint of a suspension or anything. But they said, we're going to keep you off the air for a few days because, you know, people are thinking about this more so than your NBA coverage, which I understood. But then a few days later, they sent me to Atlanta to cover the Hawks playoff game. So I just kept it moving. So but that that's the situation. That was what happened. And you say you spoke to Collins afterwards? Yeah, we I called him. I think uh, it was that was a Monday, I believe, when it happened. So it was either Tuesday or Wednesday that I spoke with Jason. I think it was Tuesday night. I had no problem with your, the, you know, you. I don't think you shouldn't be in the NBA. It's your choice to live how you want to live because people were painting it. They're just writing ridiculous stuff. And that's how I know as a member of the media, the media is number one, very liberal. And number two, oftentimes don't know what it's talking about because it was a lot of false stuff written about me in that situation. Uh, but I told him, I said, I got no issues with you playing in the NBA whatsoever. And we talked for like 10 minutes. He was like, I know, you know, it's cool. So we had a good conversation. And that was that. And I've seen him a couple times since then. He didn't, he didn't feel offended by anything you said? He didn't feel like you're coming at me personally? Look, I, I, I said I believe sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. Do people that have sex outside of marriage get mad at me? No. Do people that go to strip clubs get mad at me? No. So why, why should a homosexual? And that's the thing, too. People were acting like, Chris, you singling out homosexuals. I wasn't singling out anybody. Because if you look at my comment, I mentioned fornication, adultery, all types of things. I didn't single out homosexuality. The media that that cho- wanted to pounce on me singled out homosexuality. So w- with the media in general now, I mean, it's so amplified with social media. It's so amplified with really strong, sometimes device- divisive opinions. How do you view the the landscape of news reporting or even just opinions now, sports or otherwise, right? Like it's become very compl- – complicated is probably the wrong word. It's become very layered with politics, with religion, with race. As an old head, as a person who came from print, nowadays you can be 27 and been tweeting for 12 years and you got some sort of platform. How do, how do you feel about like – where the media is at now, people who are quote unquote covering either sports or the NBA or just life, politics, whatever. What's your perspective on where we're at? And I would even, I would even hone down that question. Would you still feel like, do you still feel like reporter, reporters are actually credible? Well, yeah, reporters are credible. Um, but there's also a lot of fake. Th- that's too blanket for me, right? There are obviously credible reporters, right? Even when we watch the news, there are certain channels that we think are biased when it comes to politics. Mm-hmm. But then there are other channels that we don't think are biased, right? I mean, I think the easiest example is if you listen to NPR, there's not going to be this influx of opinions versus just information. Uh, but to Savannah's point, I think the way the world is working is they're less and less credible. Exactly. And then there's this distrust of the media, right? Like here, I can, I can explain it. Opinion and journalism have been mixed now. So in, in my field in sports, I am really no longer a reporter. I'm an opinionist. So when I'm on television or the radio, 
I'm giving my opinion, especially when it first started. A lot of people didn't understand the difference. So Skip Bayless is giving his opinion. He's not reporting. Stephen A. Now, Stephen A. Will, Smith will work in some reports, but he's essentially giving his opinion, not reporting. But the so people haven't always understood the difference. And we're in sports, so it really isn't a big deal with that. But in real news, CNN is very biased toward the left. MSNBC is even more biased toward the left. And Fox News is biased toward the right. So I know when I watch CNN, I know the perspective I'm getting. If I watch Fox, I know the perspective I'm getting. You mentioned it. NPR and a few other places are really, it's hard to get unbiased news of what is happening. And that's the difference. And here's the thing. We always grew up with CNN as a news channel. And now when you watch it, a lot of times people think they're getting the news, but they're really getting a perspective on the news. And same thing with Fox. You're not getting the news. You're getting a perspective on the news. So that's the that's one thing that has led to so much polarization in our country is that. And I think social media has just contributed to it because now everybody has a voice and everybody's braver on social media than they may be in real life. Yeah. And I was just going to ask if like, how heavy do you felt like social media has played a part in that, especially someone who has seen, you know, media go from print to digital? You know, we have the NPRs, right? But I feel like People don't watch NPR because they don't want to see that. They want to see what they want to see, right? So, you know, a Trump supporter is going to watch Fox and they would never watch CNN. Like, not even just to get, just to get both sides, but they, people like to see what, what they feel like they can relate to. And even social media, to that point, I feel like plays a major role because who you're following is who, who, relates with your views, right? So that's the only thing that you are going to see. So I almost wonder if social media is more so of the driver of that biased news as opposed to a result. Right. And so this goes back to my question. What do you think about, and I want to, I want to rein the conversation back to sports in the NBA because that's where, you know, your industry is, right? That's what you get paid to do. Reining it back to that and going back to my question, Chris, like, How do you feel about some, I mean, you don't have to call anybody out. Um, that's not what we're here to do, but like, you know, a lot of these people covering the NBA, that's where your expertise is, right? I know you cover sports. I know you, you know, you have a radio show that's about sports, but just focusing on the NBA media for now, there's a lot of guys that cover the NBA that just started off tweeting and not, now they cover the NBA, right? And that's in complete contrast with how you guys earned your chops or Stephen Stephen A. Smith, right? Like people look at him as a talking head. People don't realize he was in the grind reporting, right? So what's your viewpoint? Again, as an old head, as a person who had to have a different path of all of these, the current media landscape, the current NBA media landscape. What do you, what do you, what's your opinion of, of these people that are covering the NBA that didn't necessarily have to go through the same stuff you did? Look, the, the few out there who have really blown up through whatever mean, you know, non-traditional means, I, I give them credit. You know, now I, I don't think there's that many that are reporting. I would disagree. I I know someone, Anthony Pucci, he's dope. The guys that people trust, the Chris Haynes, the Adrian Wojnarowski, Shams, who's young and and worked, you know, incredibly hard to get where he's at. But they've kind of paid their dues. 
So I, I think there are guys that have made a lane for themselves as maybe some type of personality through Twitter or whatever. But I don't know that many that you're going to for real news who came up in a, a non-traditional route. Yeah, I mean, there there are some though, right? And And I guess my question is, you don't have like this feeling of like they didn't earn it. Like I'm not sensing that from you, but there are some that literally have a job now. They have a blue check mark next to their Twitter handle and they don't have the chops to necessarily be a paid person, whether it's just opinions, but it's opinions about, a, you know, a sport. And that, that just didn't exist 10 plus years ago where like you're getting paid for your opinion and you, and you have no credibility whatsoever. But are people Why? considering those influencers? Like, I don't feel like, I don't feel like our generation at least are looking at those people as reporters. Like my, my friend Anthony, Anthony Pucci. I don't, are you familiar with him, Chris? Yeah. yeah. Like I would consider him someone who puts the work in and like actually analyzes and he, he's not like just on Twitter, like, like, you know, just tweeting his opinions. So I feel like, I feel like it's kind of a disservice because although you have like these influencer, you know, personalities, you can call them. I don't think people look to them to say, to see or get their, their MBA or yeah, sports I'm not information. I'm not analyzing who's looking at them and who's not as much as I'm analyzing the marketplace has shifted where these people exist, not only exist, or they have whatever following they have, big or small or medium, and they're getting compensated for that opinion for that quote-unquote coverage getting, mostly getting and maybe i'm wrong but most of them are getting compensated just through their own some of them what, some the of them the fact that they've been able to draw attention yeah, yeah exactly. some of them and, and again some of them are great a big media outlet is paying them necessarily well they're both right and i guess i'm that's what i'm commenting on the the changing landscape of the media and wondering what a person from your perspective thinks about that social media has democratized everything when I came out of school, college, if you didn't get a job at a magazine, a newspaper or TV or radio station, you were out of luck. And there was no place for you to get the experience to even get to a big paper like that. So, you know, you couldn't if you applied to a newspaper, they were going to want some clips. If you that's that's where I'm going with this. Now, you don't even do that unless you got a job at one of those four outlets. You were out of luck. Today, if you don't get a job out of college at one of those types of outlets, you can write, you can start a blog, you can start a podcast, you can go on YouTube and do your own thing. Like you said, go on Twitter. And if you are unique enough or somehow innovative enough, get the, the right connections, you can make a name for yourself. And some people have done that and gotten hired by the bigger networks. Others have, as you said, kind of made a name for themselves. So I'm not mad at them. It's just everything has changed so much. And I understand the change. So so no hate from Chris. Um, back to like the idea of good reporting, bad reporting. You know, you mentioned sometimes the media blows it up the wrong way. The Collins stuff, they were saying things that were untrue or writing things that were untrue. 
it's happened to you a couple of times, right? Like, you know, the one that sticks out to me is the Cuban stuff, right? So, you know, you tweeted something when, when DeAndre Jordan, God, you probably know better than me, summer of 2014, 2015. DeAndre Jordan was a free agent. Thinking about leaving the Clippers to go to the Mavericks. Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe even had verbally agreed to the Mavericks was, was a lot of reports. And then the Clippers sort of <laughs> ambushed him, locked him in the house and said, you're not going anywhere. You're staying with us. And then you had tweeted, and I don't have it in front of me, but you had tweeted, Mark Cuban is driving around trying to find out where DeAndre Jordan is so he can have that face-to-face conversation. And then Mark tweeted back at you and to the Twitterverse that this is false reporting. Um, and I don't remember what proceeded from there, but you got dinged on it. And honestly, Chris, I don't know how closely you've, you follow your trolls or maybe you mute them or whatever, but you get dinged a lot about sources. What's your perspective of like... Where you've maybe gone wrong on the vetting of the information. And then like, I, I'd love to hear like a general, like, this would be my advice on how to vet sources. But I, I first I want to hear like what went wrong and sort of where your mindset is there. I had some people tell me, you know, what I, what I tweeted. And I'm going to be honest at that time, I, I really wasn't thinking tweeting something was that big of a deal. Yeah. Now it's reporting. At that time, I wasn't really thinking of it as, I'm reporting this. It was just a little funny thing I threw out there, but obviously it became huge. And and understandably, I'm fine with that. Um, It's interesting because the people I had spoken to, which was a few people, went dark after Cuban went public. Like people, sources who had told me this, I couldn't get a hold of them afterwards. And Mark Cuban is a powerful dude in Dallas and really throughout the country. Now, I don't know what happened. I, I, I and Mark and I went back and forth on, uh, you know, DM, D, DMing each other on Twitter, uh, privately. And he wanted me to recant. I was like, my sources haven't backed up on this. And, you know, I'm not going to recant it until I'm absolutely true, sure it was wrong. And it wasn't really hostile. We were just going back, you know, tweeting to each other. And, um, you know, it kind of ended there. It really, you know, I mean, it, this went on for... But you did recant. I don't remember. Did you recant? I don't think I recanted. ESP, I could not prove it. Because, again, my sources went dark on me. I couldn't really prove that what I reported was true. If anything, I said that I don't remember necessarily i don't know if i recanted i don't remember and what how, i know how i went on with mark. tv i went on sports center early in the situation and talked about it but i didn't recant like honestly but I remember, chris you know mark went public and he was killing me and he was killing me a lot more publicly than in our little private right <laughs> It, uh, text, but well, honestly, Chris, when I first read that, I was like, "But Burton, I'm pretty sure he's joking. Like he tweeted this that he that Mark Cuban is literally driving around the streets of Dallas. Like, and that and that goes back to like the opinion reporting thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, especially in this day and age, like people should use a certain amount of discernment. But that's not how it was received. Like, yeah, I, Chris, it, what, it, what, it, I don't know it, if you're which is, which is interesting. Me, it was, exactly, it wasn't like opinion. It was like. I believe. So you definitely like, believe it. Right. You were reporting it. I know reporting is so, different yeah, now. Kind of report again. I was thinking it's not like a legitimate or official report. If that was something, I would write a story for ESPN.com. 
I didn't even think it was necessarily worthy of being a report. It's just a little uh, nugget, you know, in, in part of the story. Oh, Cuban trying to find out where he lives. And that's kind of what, you know, it, I thought it was just like that. But like I said, understandably, I get it. I had a certain reputation. I was for work for ESPN. I was talking about Mark Cuban. So I, I get why it blew up. But at, at, at that time, then, like, do you do like a certain like vetting process with right. your sources and things of that nature? Because at the end of the day, your sources could go dark on you and you're the one out there looking stupid. You know what I'm saying? So what do you do now to kind of prevent that? I'm not trying to break news anymore. I, I, I still talk to people around the league, but it's just so I have educated opinions when I get on television and stuff. But um, yeah, you, you know, after that, yeah, you're going to you know, you're going to be a little more careful with your sources and, and what you report and things like that. So I would say now, you know, people, and I think I even got caught up in, it's easy to get caught up in wanting to be first rather than, and, and lose sight of the main thing is to be right. And so I was careless in that moment. You know, there's no, no question about, it. again, whether it was true or not, I was careless in that moment because I could have easily hit Mark hit myself. Because you didn't, you also couldn't prove it. To to, you couldn't prove it. So because you couldn't prove it, I mean, it's more. I mean, and again, it's easy I, to say you're wrong. Prove to me that he, right? You know, but he didn't have to. So he didn't have to. Right, right, right. So that's really, I couldn't prove what I had tweeted. So so getting back to like. So you got that one wrong and you've been ding a bunch of times. And like I said, like getting back to the question of like, do you like even listen to the trolls or? You wasting your time trolling. Yeah, me. I agree. I agree. And if, if you're trying to get to me, I'm a grown man. I got, I, I don't have to, I didn't grow up on social media. Right. But do you have an opinion about people who say you get it wrong all the time or do you don't care even on that? I mean, people are entitled to their opinions. I'm a person that goes on television and radio giving my opinion. All right. And if I and, and, and sometimes that opinion is harsh, I got to be able to take it. Right? Well, I'm not, I'm not talking about your opinion. I'm talking about when you were reporting. If you get if you can go if you can make a living criticizing people, not that I'm always criticized, but, you know, part of it is being critical of people. But when people are critical of you, you you cry about it. That, that, that's a punk. With, with that whole thing with Stan, like so what happened was, if I remember correctly, you had. Your opinion was the Blazers weren't getting far enough with stops. I think that's what it was. You, you weren't. You felt it like was, they needed to change. I was on Colin Cowherd's radio show to Herd after Portland had been eliminated. It may have the playoffs may have even been over, but I, but they had been eliminated. And I was asked like, where can they go? <clears throat> and I I basically compared them to the Golden State Warriors. And I said, you remember before Steve Kerr went to the Warriors. They seemed like they had topped out. I remember being at their first training camp with Steve Kerr, with PJ Carlissimo, and we both were talking about the team. And both of us were like, look, if it goes great, if they all play well, Steph, Clay, Dray- Draymond wasn't even really a factor at he that point. He wasn't a starter at that David point. Lee, right. David Lee, Iguodala, like it was like at best, they're probably they're second round and out. I don't see him getting past. So the feeling was they had topped out. But what happens is Steve Kerr puts in the perfect offense for that group of players, 
and they skyrocket. So I said they pretty much have topped out. Stocks did, has done a good job. There's no question about that. But they may have topped out. Right, under Portland him. may have topped out. They may yeah, need a coaching might change. Need another look, another voice, another coach, coaching style to get see if they can go to another level. And and Stan Van Gundy, who was working in the media at that time, took a shot at. Me. Well, he's protecting like he's. A coach's coach, right? Like he's going to protect his coach. He took a shot at you. I don't know if you went back at him, and then you and I text about it. I was actually, I was going to let it go, but someone uh, that I, I won't mention his name, but he, he was a former superstar player. We talked. He was like, "You, you should, you shouldn't let that sit." And your position is what? That like, hey, I'm getting paid for my opinion, and my opinion is they should have a coaching chain. Stan's opinion is, why are you calling for someone's job? Your disposition is, well, you're calling for my job, and you don't even have the right to do that, right? He was media at that time, calling for another media person's job. I, I don't really do that. Like, I, I think media, my job is not to critique other media. My job is to critique coaches and athletes. And so that's what I was doing. So I said to him, you're in the media now. He wasn't coaching at that time. You're in the media now. You shouldn't be calling for another media person's job. Your opinion is your opinion. Just like my opinion is my opinion. I'm paid to give my opinion. That's what I'm doing. I'm actually doing my job. You call for me to be fired for doing my job. Yeah. I thought you responded That's- to that beautifully in my humble opinion. But here's one thing I don't want to gloss over because I think you can give us some good insight on this, especially being an old head. And I got to keep saying, reiterating that. But uh, <laughs> with, with your gray hair. I, I'm an old head too. He's, yeah, right? he's right there with you, Chris. I'm, yeah, I'm on the fourth floor, Chris. I'm 41 now. Um, you came up at a certain time, you know, if you want to define it as the 90s, but as a black journalist, when there probably wasn't that many of them out there. And there's still. You know, dis, I don't want to use the word disproportionate, but the ratio of black journalists covering a predominantly black sport, um, is different than the ratio of white journalists, even white males, right? So how'd you navigate that? And did, was it difficult? Do you have a story you want to share with us where it was really difficult? Do you want, is there a story you want to share with us where it wasn't difficult because you were black? Like a guy took to you because he's like, yeah, I'd rather talk to this guy because I can relate to him versus, you know, some of your white counterparts. Is there something there? Like I'd love a one meaty story. Again, I want to be mindful of your time, but love one meaty story about something along those lines. I wrote a column once when I was at the Akron Beacon Journal about if you you might remember when Billy Packer, who was a great announcer, broadcaster, called Allen Iverson a tough monkey. And I wrote a big column about that, that that won some awards. But I got tons of hate mail about it. And it the column was just, you know, talking about calling black people monkeys, which as you can see is not something you know you should do and and that's fair. And, and I acknowledge that Packer may not have meant it in a derogatory way, but it showed that he didn't know enough about African-Americans or, or history, our history, to know that that would have been offensive. But, but getting all the hate mail I got for that showed me, I mean, I knew before that the racism that existed in society, but it just showed that, you know, a lot of people that cheer for these athletes still don't have a lot of respect for them. So that's one incident. As far as being a writer moving up in the league, I mean, I do think, you know, African-American writers, you naturally, with the league being 75% black, there's a natural uh, bond or 
Like we share the same culture. You know, you, you share the same culture as the African-American players. So that makes for a somewhat of a natural connection. Do you feel like you were able to get more out of them because of that? Yes. I know in my experiences interviewing athletes, it did bring different responses from them, more natural responses, whereas maybe, and, and this is certainly isn't across the board because obviously you have great white journalists that get things out of athletes and have good relationships with them as well. But I think I always wanted to present the athlete as they were, as they really were. And I think being an African-American journalist, speaking the way I speak, speaking Ebonics naturally, I mean, let's keep it real. I think sometimes that can make them more comfortable. Absolutely. And they'll give more of a natural answer rather than I got to be on my P's and Q's and say this totally proper English and all that type of stuff. Um, but I, but on the other hand, now, so, so some white writers may feel like, well, black, they got an advantage. But then remember, most of the executives and the front office really are the ones that you can break stories through, at least transactional stories are white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's an advantage for them, perhaps. And not and so, not even to mention just getting into the league because half the time it's nepotism and the people that are just within their right. networks are within their own culture. So yeah, I'm, I'm, it's I'm a whole over. other story. White though. guy can't tell me that someone else has an advantage <laughs> anymore. Like that's not that's I'm <laughs> never I'm not gonna respond well to that ever. Um all right Chris, really appreciate you. This was fun. Couple things. Uh you can uh catch Chris radio show uh week or daily, sorry, the odd couple with Rob Pop Parker on iHeartRadio. You can catch him on Fox Sports with his opinions, not his news-breaking stories anymore. <laughs> Wait, can- real quick, opinion. How far are the Nets going to go now that we just got Harden? We. I, she just said we. I said Damn. we. Right. So you, are you from Brooklyn? <laughs> I am from Brooklyn. <laughs> um, look, I don't think they'll win the championship. I think the Lakers mm-hmm. will beat them. In six? I, I, I'm not ready to make a prediction of games uh, yet. Come on, your sounds, opinions. You're not reporting. Six is always the easy prediction. Right? But Chris, you think they're going to win the East? Well, I... That's I, a prediction. I, mean, I think they're going to win the East. If, I, if you put a gun to my head and said you absolutely have to pick a favorite, I'm fine going with the Nets. Because everybody in the East has questions, right? Milwaukee, mm-hmm. Boston, and Miami... And they all have questions about Philadelphia. And so, but here's what I'll throw out. I won't be surprised if the Nets don't win the East. Because this is the biggest, I've said this, this is the biggest chemistry experiment Mm -hmm. in my 26 years of covering the NBA. And maybe ever in the NBA. This is a huge experiment that could go great or it could blow up. And, and it still doesn't answer the, the main question following the Nets, which is, where's Kyrie's head at? Kyrie is tremendous. I've already said he's the best ball handler in NBA history. He's a Hall of Famer, all that. But I would feel more certain about them if it was just Kyrie or Harden and KD. Right. And their role players around. Right, right, right. Wow. Right. So you because think Kyrie I, I, it is would be a headache. much easier fit. There's only one uh-huh. ball, right? So There's only it, one ball. Yeah. It's Chris, true. appreciate the time. Thank you. Catch him on iHeartRadio. Catch him on Fox Sports. Catch him at the nearest spades table. Chris and I were in a spades tournament together. Celebrity spades tournament a few years ago in LA. All st- D-Wade, Stance, Celebrity Spades Tournament. Chris was my partner. He was very um, hesitant to be my partner because he felt like Indian 
Titans didn't know how to play spades. Literally told I me. I never met. I don't know if I've ever played spades with anybody that wasn't black. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, 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 right. And, and most people Honestly. have that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and to his credit, he was the Scotty Pippen. Of my <laughs> I knew you. I was. I was trying to say it. I was trying to call you Scotty Pippen, but he beat me to it. I know, Chris. You beat me to it. We won the tournament. Now Burton, look. Real talk. You won the tournament. Yeah, okay, we won the tournament. Okay. I was playing chess, and the rest of us were playing chess. I was. Tri- I, okay. I put, I I put on a. I put on a crazy move, meaning like I tricked her on Gab Union. Do you remember this? Like yeah. I literally tricked her to play a card, and D Wade was hot. Yes, His exact yes, words were, yes. "I cannot believe you fell for that." So, long story <laughs> short, Chris and I win the tournament, and uh, we, we appreciate your time. We appreciate all of the knowledge. Um, hope to have you on the pod again. Appreciate. You, Chris. Uh, it was Thank a you. Pleasure. I enjoyed it, and uh, definitely, whenever you need me, let me know. Keep up the great work, though. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to follow us on all social channels at the Black Box Pod. The show would not be possible without our team. Special thanks to our producers, Amanda Berkowitz and Katie McGuigan. Our video director, Paul Aspen. Music by Ye Ali. Designed by Lineage Digital. All photos by Jonathan Gabriel Charles. And our production house, Gotham Podcast Studio in New York City. Special shout out to Raul Hernandez. We'll see you guys next time.